Can we talk? No, I mean really talk. Not in the usual typing, texting, posting, commenting sort of way we're so used to, where discussions become debates. And somehow, every opinion is wrong. I'm talking about truly thoughtful, considerate, healthy communication. Because I have questions, and I'm convinced there are answers. Sure, it may get uncomfortable or awkward, heated or hot, but I'm not willing to let fear, insecurity, anger, or pain get in the way of fulfillment, insight, answers, and peace. I need to know, when it comes to bigotry, exclusivity, and anxiety, misogyny, sexual sanctity, and agony, what does God demand? What does the Bible command? Where do we stand? So, are you ready to talk? He sat in a cave in fear. What had happened to this incredible man of the Bible, this man named Elijah? A handful of weeks before, he had called down fire from heaven. He had single-handedly schwacked a bunch of evil, evil men. When he did that, the leader of those evil men, her name was Queen Jezebel, she said to this man, Elijah, may the gods strike me and even kill me if by tomorrow I've not killed you just as you killed them. And when she said, I'm coming after you, Elijah turned his focus from the power of God to the control of his fear. Isn't it funny how misplaced emotion can often lead to misdirected devotion? Such was the case for Elijah. And so he ran. And several weeks later, we find him at the place where he knew he could meet God this place called Mount Sinai, the same place where God had given Moses the Ten Commandments. So he went into this cave on Mount Sinai, and as he's hiding in the cave with his cloak wrapped over him, it, focusing on the, the, the control of his fear and praying for his life, God asks him a question. And I think it's the most important question, or one of the most important questions in Scripture. God asks him, what are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here? Elijah? Well, Elijah doesn't answer the question. He just tells God all the great things he has been doing for God. And God says, shut up, boy. Come up to the edge of the, of, of the cave because I'm going to talk to you. God sends an incredible whirlwind, yet God remains silent. He sends a, a fierce earthquake, yet God remains silent. He then sends an all-consuming fire, yet God remains silent. And as, as Elijah wraps his cloak tighter around him, he comes up to the edge of the cave. He hears a still, small voice from God, a whisper of God. And God asks again, what are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here? It's an important question because Elijah's devotion had shifted from his God to his fear. Isn't it funny how the, the, the places we allow our mind to go reveal what we truly worship? What we're devoted to in our lives, whether it's our careers, our spouses, our kids, a, a relationship with someone, security, or a, a combination of all those things. What we're devoted to the most in life is what we're going to worry about the most. What we're devoted to the most in life is what we're going to have the most anxiety about 
And that place of worry, that place of anxiety, well, it's a place void of God. So God shifts Elijah's devotion with a simple question. What are you doing here, Elijah? And when Elijah takes his focus off of his fear and back on God, God uses him greatly in his last season of his life. You see, focus matters in life. When I was in the army, at about the 26th year that I was in, or 24th year that I was in the army, I, I was uh, fortunate to go to a, a pretty cool school, and that school was anti-terrorism driving school. Anti-terrorism driving school, we got to do a lot of cool things. You get to drive and shoot out the windows and, and, and you know, drive in fast-moving convoys, things like that. One of the things we had to do was negotiate obstacles at high speed. So here's how it works. You get in your car, and, and thank God it's not my car because, I mean, these are beater cars because it, it's, it's a crazy school. You sit in, the, in the, the driver's seat, you got your instructor in the passenger seat, and he puts a, a cardboard over the windshield. And you have to get the car up to, to 90 miles an hour. You don't know where you're going. You have to steer straight, get it up to 90 miles an hour, and then when he pulls the cardboard out of the way, you have to react to the obstacle that's in front of you. And so, of course, I was the first one. I got in there um, and went, and he pulls the, the, the cardboard out of the way, and I slammed right into the obstacle. All the guys in my class did the same thing. We were no-goes at that station. And so brought us all together, and he said, guys, here's the deal. Here's, here's a lesson for you in this, especially in high-speed driving. Where you, your eyes go, your car will follow. Where your eyes go, your car will follow. What he meant was, when, when you focus on the obstacle, that's where your car is going to go. It's, it's natural to focus on the obstacle. He said, focus on the exit, because when you focus on the exit, that's where your car is going to go nine times out of ten. You might, may get some bumps and bruises, but in the end, you're going to make it through there. Focus matters. And as I was putting today's teaching together on anxiety, that story came to mind because it's so true in our lives. We saw it in the life of Elijah. We see it in our own lives. That what we focus on says a lot about what matters most to us. So if you get anything at all out of today's teaching, get this. Focus matters. Focus is about your devotion. And where your devotion is, your life will follow. Where your devotion is, your life will Will follow. Well, this is the main truth we're landing on today as we hit week three of our series called Conversations. And the conversation we're having today is, is uh, how do I deal with this thing called anxiety? And I need your grace on this because there's no way in 30 minutes I can cover everything that has to deal with anxiety. It's a complicated issue. But, I, but we're going to find out a lot on how to deal with it. In fact, my hope is by the end of this teaching today, you're going to have some tools that you can put in your toolkit when dealing with anxiety. I'll share a little bit of my story, and I need your grace because I'm going to be relying on, on a lot of my notes today, so thank you for that. As I said, where you allow your mind to focus is the place of your devotion, and that place can either take away your anxiety or it can add to your anxiety. So we're going to hang out in two chunks of scripture today. First chunk is Psalm 27. So turn, turn to that as I set up the scene for what's going on. The other one's is Philippians chapter 4. So Psalm 27, it's written by a guy named David. David wrote about half of the Psalms. And in this Psalm, it's pretty interesting. David has been anointed king of Israel in secret. See, Israel already has a king. His name is Saul. And Saul's a bad guy. That's just the bottom line. He's paranoid. He has no character. He has no integrity. His threat to the throne is David. So if you're a king and there's a great threat to your throne, what do you do? You're going to try to kill him. 
So Saul sends his army out to kill David. Do you think David could have some high fear, some high anxiety? Absolutely. Let's see what David says about this. Psalm 27, let's look at the first three verses. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Some of your your translations say the Lord is my fortress. Why should I be afraid? When evil men advance against me to devour my flesh, when my enemies and my foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Other translations say, even if an army surrounds me, I will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. Well, so many times in my life as I've walked with people who are going through difficult times, times of uncertainty, I always say don't focus on the worst case scenario because most of the time that worst case scenario isn't going to happen. But what happens when the worst case scenario does happen? And as I read Psalm 27, what I realize, that may not be the best advice Because here in this psalm, we see David going to the worst place. The worst place is his reality. But instead of saying, what if this worst thing happens? He says, even if. Even if this worst thing happens. And it's a battle that we all face when we face times of anxiety, worry, and fear. I call it the battle of what if versus even if. What does that mean? Let's talk about that. In the world of what if, when we're facing a difficult situation... It's easy to say, what if this happens? What if is focusing on the obstacle? Even if is focusing on the exit. What if is the land of uncertainty? Even if is the land of God's sovereignty. What if is about the obstacle? Even if, even if is about the exit. So David's not saying, what if evil men come to devour me? Because they're there at his door. He's saying, no, even if. I got a good God who's going to take care of me. What if these men come with me with swords of an army surrounds me? No, even if that happens, I'm going to be taken care of because God has my back. So as I said, for David, the worst case is his reality, but he approaches it not as what if, but even if. And I know right now here, Skagit, Boca Raton, those of you watching online, so many of you are going through a time of uncertainty. It may be a time in which you're waiting for the test results of a medical test, Maybe the doctor said, you know, it could be a whole slew of things, and you want to go to the land of what if. You want to focus on that obstacle. You may have a, a, an issue in your life with your job. Maybe you can't pay the rent. I don't know what it is, but, but you want to go. It's natural to focus on the obstacle. And what we see here is we're supposed to do the unnatural, and that's focus on the exit. That exit is Jesus. We serve a good God. We've we got to understand that God is bigger, and it's a mind shift. When we go to the land of what if, it's as if God grabs us by the collar and says, what are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here? So David makes it clear where he focuses his devotion, and it's on God. And that focus allows him to diminish his worst case. So he's going to give us next, in the next verse, he's going to give us a strategy to deal with anxiety worry, and fear. Here we go. Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. David here gives us this threefold strategy to fight fear and anxiety, and it's to dwell, gaze, and seek. To dwell, gaze, and seek. What does that mean? Well, to dwell simply means to be in God's presence. I think David, when he talks about dwelling in 
his house, in, in the house of the Lord. I think he had in mind the temple. David, David would never be allowed to build the temple because he had blood on his hands. But he knew that was the place where he could meet God. The beauty for us as Christ followers is when we receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior, God takes up residence in us. In fact, Ephesians 2 says that God dwells in us with Christ in our lives. And so with Christ in our lives, we have access to God 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We have an ability, no matter where we are, to have the unbroken presence and fellowship of God. We get to, to experience God intimately and not from a distance. That's what it means to dwell. What about gaze? To gaze onto God is to meditate on his life, his love, and his word. If you want to know the character of God, go to the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and just see the character of Jesus because Jesus is God. It's why here at Cornwall Church, the number one discipleship goal we have is for you to connect with God through Scripture, to meditate on Scripture because that's where you're truly going to see the face of God with absolute truth. So we're told to dwell, we're told to gaze, but what about seek? The, the, the word seek here is a cool word. It's, it's bakash in Hebrew, and it means to have great intensity and focus as you go after something. And isn't that what God calls on us to do, to seek him greatly? So in any situation where our anxiety levels can be high, to keep them low, we got to dwell, gaze, and seek on God. Let me give you an example in my life about how that happens, how it happened to me about 10 years ago last month. Uh, Ten years ago, last month, it was in my 26th year in the Army. I was a colonel. I was uh, stationed at the embassy in Seoul, South Korea. Uh, I was leading a team of intelligence officers. Our mission was to pull apart the North Korean nuclear problem. I failed. It's my fault. I'm sorry. President Trump, I give it to you. So it, to say it was a, a, a high-stress environment is an understatement. I was having some medical issues at the time. I didn't know that a handful of years before I'd gotten West Nile virus. And when you get West, West Nile virus, uh, for a small percentage of us, it wrecks your body. So you get all sorts of weird muscle cramping and things like that. So I went to my neurologist at, at the military base in Seoul, and uh, he said, hey, sir, here's the bottom line. We've done all these tests. We don't know what's going on. But I did my residency at Walter Reed Hospital in D.C. So I'm gonna, I, we're going to send you out there. It's going to be a one-day gig. You're going to get all these tests done to you. Good luck with that. And, of course, beforehand, he had to tell me all the things that it, that it just might be. And so now my anxiety levels are up here because I'm thinking the worst case of what's going to happen. I am living in the land of what if. I'm focusing on the obstacle. So I show up to Walter Reed, 2007, the height of the Iraq-Afghanistan war. And as I go there, I, you know, I get all the, the tests done. At the end of the day, the doctors come in. They said, Colonel McCormick, um, we got no clue what's going on with you. Anxiety levels are up here. And then they said, but it's not going to kill you. And they came down just a little bit. But then I said, wait a second, guys, my hands shake. I'm in a profession of arms. When I go to the rifle range, everybody says, everybody run. Colonel McCormick's got a gun. This is not good. My anxiety levels are here. And they said, well, good luck with that. So now I'm, I've got high anxiety levels. I'm focusing on what if I was going to be a general. This is, what, this is what I was called to do. And it's funny how God grabs you and says, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he grabs me, not literally, but grabs me by the heart. And I got to take a walk. I got to leave, you know. I got to go catch my flight back to Seoul, South Korea. And as I walk out of the neurology clinic, you know, it's tra traumatic brain injuries all over the place. And I'm looking around at, at some suffering going on, and it puts it all in perspective. 
As I walk out the door, though, I nearly get run over by this young army trooper. He doesn't have any legs. He's got his three-year-old boy on his lap, and, and he's going down the hall as fast as he can. His beautiful wife is running behind him, and, and the little boy's saying, run uh, faster, Daddy, faster. And he's so jacked up and excited because he's getting his legs that day. He's going to be a blade runner. And what God does is he places it in my heart as I dwell, gaze, and seek at God at this moment because I'm seeing the love of a father and his little boy. It's as if God says, you see that love? I got you, man. I got that same love for you. Focus on me. Don't focus on the obstacle. Anxiety level's still about this high. They're coming down, though. Walk down the hallway, get in the elevator, go down to the first floor, Walter Reed Hospital, 2007. You got wounded warriors everywhere. And at that time, we were not taking care of our families of wounded warriors. In fact, what would happen is uh, you'd see all these families spending their life savings so they could spend time with their warrior. And so I, I come out. Come out of the elevator. There's this young trooper. I, I, I find out his story. His story's a great story. He's, you know, he's serving. He's 19 years old. His Humvee, his vehicle, runs over an improvised explosive device, and it blows off a big chunk of his leg. These military doctors are amazing. They can take a chunk of meat and bring it back to life. And they, they, they put his leg together, and he's got, his leg looks like a trunk in a cage. And what's so cool is, is I see this going on, and I know in my heart what he's going to be facing with post-traumatic stress. I know the VA system he's going to be facing that was broken at that time. And I see these parents just loving on their son. And once again, I'm dwelling and gazing and seeking God. It's as if I'm touching the face of God because I see these parents and loved ones. I'm seeing love because God is love, Right? And as I dwell, gaze, and seek, my, my focus is on the exit and not the obstacle. And my anxiety, anxiety levels go from here down to here. Dwell, gaze, and seek. Living in the land of even if, not what if. Look what happens when we do that. Verse 5. For in the day of trouble, he, God, will keep me, in, keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his tabernacle and set me high upon the rock. Keeping you safe in his dwelling doesn't mean you're not going to have bad stuff happen to you. Newsflash, suffering is universal. There's bad theology out there, and that bad theology is this. If you receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior and you do a whole bunch of things, then God owes you to never let you go through something or series of things in your life. It's not true. Just go to the New Testament and look at how all the disciples died. Suffering is, is truth, and just a side note, Memorial Day weekend, I'm going to be preaching the last sermon in this series, and it's how can a good God allow suffering? You don't want to miss it. So God may choose to allow difficulties in our lives. Difficulties may come because somebody's been stupid. We may have anxiety and difficulties in our lives because of mistakes we've made. But get this, when we have Jesus in our heart, we are eternally safe. He's either going to reconcile it on this side of eternity or on the other, but we have to trust that he's a good, good father. We have to focus on, he, on him, the exit, rather than the circumstances, which are the obstacles. So he gives us a strategy here. We dwell, we gaze, we seek. We li live in the land of what if, or the land of even if versus the land of what if. We focus on the exit rather than the obstacle, but I need more. I need more for me. I suffer from anxiety. 
and it's horrible. I suffer from depression too, but anxiety is, is that beast that comes after me. I need more. Let's keep on going. Augustine, about 1,600 years ago, he said that anxiety is the implosion of a false god. Anxiety is the implosion of a false god. What he meant by that was that the things we value the most can become gods, and when they crash, when they fall apart, or when we even have the threat of them crashing or falling apart, when that happens, we can get great anxiety, we can get worry, and we can get fear. Those things, though, those things that we're focusing on can be good things. Let me give you an example. The love of a child or the love of a grandchild. We can love our kids or our grandkids so much that we become devoted more to them than Jesus. We can, we can worship them more than, than we worship Jesus, or we can, we can be so focused and hyper-focused on their safety and welfare that we start going to the land of what if. What if my child gets sick? Or if my child is sick, what if my child dies? And we get hyper-focused on that. We go to the land of what if, which is a land of fear and uncertainty. We focus on the obstacle. And God says, no, you got you to gotta do the unnatural thing. Focus on the exit. Focus on me because I am good. And I will reconcile this thing. And it can be a number of things that pulls our focus and our devotion away from God, because remember, where your devotion is, your life will follow. It can be a career. Maybe it's schooling. Maybe you're, you're working hard in, in school, getting ready to graduate to go off and do great things. Or maybe it's, it's uh, college and you're getting ready to, to graduate there and go off and do great things. There's uncertainty. Maybe it's a relationship. I don't know what it is, but there are things out there that we put so much worth on, and if, if they fall apart or the threat of them falling apart, it crushes us. And God says, don't say what if, say even if. And if you live in the land of what if, it's as if God grabs you by the chest and says, what are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here? God is good, and he will reconcile the issue, sometimes in ways we don't understand and can't understand. So he gives us a strategy in Psalm 27, how to overcome anxiety. That's a good strategy, dwell, gaze, and seek even if versus what if. I like that. I can hang on to that, but I got to have more. I got to have more. Uh, Reverend Tim Keller is an incredible theologian, and I, I took some of the talking points for today's teaching from him. And, and I appreciate all those, those great things that he, he, he has in his commentaries, but I need more. Go over to Philippians chapter 4. Let's see what God says through this apostle Paul. Paul had written this letter to the church in Philippi, and he was talking to them about what it means to have joy in suffering. Joy in living, joy in giving, joy in serving. And he hones in on this thing called anxiety. Verses four through, or Philippians 4, verses 6 through 8. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. So let's talk about this, this word anxious. Uh, it's, it's very straightforward what anxious means, right? It means to be, to be worried, to, to be fretful, to be troubled. But sometimes we need to go into what the original language defined this word as and how it was specifically used. Because in this instance, there's a, a combination of two words used to describe anxious. It's metamnaus, it means a divided mind. A divided mind. 
Isn't that true what's, uh, when, when we get anxious, that's what happens? Our mind gets divided, our focus gets divided, our devotion gets divided. We focus on the one thing that's causing us stress. We get hyper-focused on the obstacle, and what happens when we focus on the obstacle? We crash into it. And what God says is focus on the one who delivers us from that obstacle, the exit. It's unnatural. Another way to read verse 6 is, do not let your mind get divided about anything. So how do we get our mind back on track? How do we get our mind back on, on the exit, which is Jesus, instead of the thing that's causing us so much stress and anxiety? Well, Paul gives us an unnatural thing for that. Let's look at this again. Do not be anxious about anything. Do not let your mind get divided about anything. But in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. So Paul says, okay, you come to God when you're going to, through this, this stressful time, these anxious times, you come to God and you surrender these things at your feet or at his feet. But there's more to it than that. You need to thank God. Now, he's not saying thank God for that circumstance. Thank you, God, for giving me this cancer. That's not what he's saying. No, you're thankful in the circumstance because either God is in control or he's not. And the last time I checked, I serve a sovereign God. So let me give you an example of this. I, a handful of months ago, I preached a sermon. I think it was um, the, the Victorious Limp. And in that sermon, I told a story about a guy named Levi Lusco. Uh, Levi's an incredible pastor. And uh, he wrote this book called Through the Eyes of a Lion. It's an incredible book on suffering. Anyway, he and his wife, they had this little girl named Linya. Linya was five years old, and she had an asthma attack. She had asthma attacks a lot, but this one, well, it killed her. And they're in the emergency room. The doctors come out of the emergency room. Little Linya's on the table. Uh, the, the, all the machines are shut off. And they come out and they say, I'm sorry, Levi, we did everything we could do, but, but, but Linya's dead. And so they come into the room, and, and Levi and his wife grab, their, grab each other's hands. They close her eyes, because her eyes are still open. They close her eyes, and they raise their hands, and they say, God, thank you for giving us little Linya. You gave her to us for five years, and she was a gift, and we don't understand this. This is horrific. We don't understand what's going on, but we trust you. We trust you, and every day we breathe a breath. Every breath we take, we're one breath closer to being reunited with Linya, who is in heaven with you right now, and she's not suffering. You see, thankfulness kills anxiety because praise shuts down the enemy. Praise and worry, they can't sleep in the same bed. Praise and worry can't sleep in the same bed. It's impossible to truly praise God for who he is and worry at the same time. And God tells us here that thankfulness isn't an, an, an option. It's an obligation. It puts our circumstances in perspective. See, thankfulness leads to the attitude of even if, focusing on the exit, rather than the attitude of what if, which focuses on what? The obstacle. The obstacle. Look what happens when we have that attitude, verse 7. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. When we do that weird thing, and that unnatural thing, in the midst of a time where we have high anxiety and high stress and worry, something supernatural happens. It surpasses all understanding. We get peace, peace from God, because thankfulness refocuses our mind. Anxiety is about a divided mind. Thankfulness brings it together. Verse 8. 
Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. So Paul says we're supposed to focus on things that are true, noble, pure, right, lovely, admirable, admirable, excellent, praiseworthy. There are a lot of things in life that are, that are a combination of those. You know, some things are true and noble, some things are pure and lovely, but not everything There's not one thing out there that encompasses all of that except Jesus. You see, this whatever that Paul is talking about, I think, whatever is Jesus. Whatever is Jesus. Jesus is the exit. He's in control even when life is out of control. So let's recap this because I want to go to this last part of this teaching. God knows we're going to face anxiety in life. Anxiety is about a a divided mind, a divided focus of our devotion, and where our devotion is, our lives will follow. And we refocus by dwelling and gazing and seeking God. We refocus by stepping into the land of even if versus the land of what if, focusing on the exit versus the obstacle, being thankful in our circumstances, focusing on Jesus. So it's that easy, right? Not for me. As I said, I've struggled with anxiety my whole life. My mom said I was born a worrier. When I came out of the womb, I I know when I came out of the womb and they pulled me out, the doctor's ready to slap my bottom like, oh, this is going to hurt. I know this is going to hurt. What if it hurts? I started my life living in the land of what if. I've developed coping mechanisms, spiritual disciplines like we've talked about, yet I still have anxiety. And I've had good godly men and women tell me, Kip, and pastors, Kip, this is a faith issue. You just got to have more faith. I don't know if I, in fact, I don't agree with that. Hear me out. Um, The Apostle Paul is one of my heroes. And he had this this thorn in in his flesh. It wasn't a sin issue. It was most likely a medical issue. And he asked God three times to remove that, that, that thorn from his flesh. And God said no. Paul's one of the greatest men of faith in the Bible. God said no. It gives me hope when I see that that Paul says, or God says to Paul, my strength is made made, uh, perfect in your weakness. Your weakness is going to show my strength. I get another, uh, I get more hope from this guy named Jesus, who's the hero of all of our sermons here at Cornwall Church. Go with me to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is fervently praying about what's getting ready to happen. He's asking God to take away a cup of suffering from him. He's hours from going to the cross. Luke 22, verse 44. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. This word anguish is very important. The Greek word is agonia. It's where we get the English word agony. Jesus is in agony. Agony means to to be in a struggle. And when it's a mental struggle, it's the struggle of the mind. See, Jesus is trying to stay focused. And he's got an obstacle and he's got an exit. But unlike us, Jesus is the only one who had this obstacle, which was also his exit. You see, he was going to have to take on the cross as the obstacle. He was going to have to go to the cross and die for us so that that all of our sin would be placed on his shoulders. He'd be separated from God the Father the only time in history that that would happen. And he's in anguish, and he's focusing on the obstacle, but the obstacle is also the exit because he has to go there before he can be resurrected. He is God. And he gets his focus back 
by owning up to it, just saying, God, take this from me. I don't want to do this. But nonetheless, it's not about me. It's about you. He focuses on the exit rather than the obstacle. And he gives me hope because Jesus was sinless. He still had to fight this battle. Because he can, I can't. I'm going to say something here that might offend some of you, but this is a truth I believe. Anxiety is not a sin, but doing nothing about it is. Anxiety is not a sin. Living in it is. Now, hear me out with this, okay, before you, you write a note to Bob saying Kip can't preach anymore. He's a heretic. Um, God gives us two commandments, right? Love God greatly. Love each other dearly. I don't know about you, but when I'm in a high time of high anxiety and high stress, the sound in my life is like this. And I can't hear God. I can't relate to God. I can't love him with everything I have. I've had to apologize to my wife and kids, my colleagues, so many times in my life because when I'm up here with anxiety, I'm cutting. I'm not loving them the way God told me to love them. And for me, I believe that's sinful. We have idols in our lives, and we focus on those idols, and we get anxiety with the threat of those idols crashing around us. See, anxiety in and of itself isn't a sin, but the way we respond to it can be. We can look at pornography. We can abuse alcohol, abuse drugs, get into illicit relationships, anything to get that quick escape because we've got to have something. If you've ever been in a panic attack, you know you've got to have something to save you. You'll grasp at anything. So what about medication? I, I've been on meds for, for a while, um, and I, I feel that God has really given me that to help me because on, uh, without my meds, life is... On my meds, it's more like... So let's talk about that. My goodness, a pastor on medication. All of us are going to deal with anxiety. We are. We live in a fallen world. God gives us his word. He gives us his Holy Spirit. He gives us godly men and women, counselors, incredible counselors, to walk with us, to get to that road to the wound, to, to help us deal with the trauma, the things that could cause anxiety. But for some of us, our brains just don't produce the chemicals we need to fight anxiety, depression. Those two tend to walk the same road together. Bipolarism. ADD, ADHD, R-E-S-P-E-C-T, sock it to me, sock it to me. And just as li like a, a diabetic needs insulin, some of us need medication to help us. The Apostle Paul is talking to his protege, Timothy. Now, Timothy, you talk about a rough job. Paul is a senior pastor of this church, and he bolts out of there. He's going to go start another church, and he turns it over to Timothy. I think Timothy's probably in his mid-20s. He's young. And do you talk about pressure? He turns it over to Timothy, and Timothy's having some stomach problems. Speculation here. Total speculation, not on the stomach problems. Total speculation here. I wonder if it's because of the pressure Timothy was facing. I wonder if Timothy was having some anxiety. Speculation, not biblical, it's kiblical. And I wonder, when, when, when Paul talks to him, he says, Timothy, you need to drink some wine to help your stomach. And he's not saying, hey, let's, let's get together, we'll have a few drinks, we'll kick back, we'll have some laughs. No, in, in Paul's day, uh, wine was 
a, a basic medicine. And he doesn't say, Timothy, you, you need to have more faith. I don't see that at all. He says, no, here's some me- the medicine of the day. Let's use this in proper proportion so you can get some help. So I'm on anxiety meds for a prolonged season. And is it all I rely on? Absolutely not. I've got a great counselor. I've got great people in my life. I use these spiritual disciplines. And it's a battle. And it's cool because God's doing something in it. You see, what I love, I I love this church. I love being a pastor here. I've got incredible colleagues that I get to work with every day. I get to be with you guys a whole bunch. I get free coffee a lot with you guys, and that's fun. But what you guys don't realize is because I get to preach about every four weeks, every, every six weeks. I love preaching. But what you may not realize is how nervous I am beforehand. I am a, a bundle of nerves beforehand. Oftentimes, you'll see me in that back corner back there before I preach. In fact, before every sermon, I'm back there. And it's not because I'm trying to hide and not talk to anybody. Really, I'm, I'm trying to get my mind focused. Because, you see, I've got an idol. And my idol is people-pleasing. I've got to get the affirmation from people. I've got to get that applause. See, I, when, when, I, when I'm trying to get my mind focused on preaching, and, I, and it's divided, it's totally divided. When I'm sitting back there, I'm in the land of what if, and I'm in this battle. What if they don't like my sermon? What if I didn't prepare well enough? What if I forget all these thousands of points that God gave me to share? What if, what if they come and criticize me at the end of the sermon? Side note here by the way. Um, All of us pastors, we preach our hearts out on the weekends. At the end of the sermon, if you disagree with something, that's not the best time to come up and do a drive-by shooting and tell us that. (laughs) Trust me, we are our worst critics. If you want to talk about it, set up an appointment because we want to honor you. if you, If something was said, we want to have that conversation. It's not at that time. So I'm sitting in the back. What if they criticize me? And I'm focusing on scripture. God gives me scripture every weekend just to focus on because where my mind is my my or where my focus is my preaching's going to follow. This weekend it's 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 4. For we speak as messengers approved by God to be entrusted with the good news. Our purpose is to please God not people. He alone examines the motives of our hearts. And when I'm focusing on this I go to the land of even if. Cuz even if I botch it I've done my best, and my good father isn't going to be there to shwack me down. You know, when I stand up in front of Jesus, he's not going to say, well done, good and successful servant. He's not going to say, Kip, well done, good and successful servant. You had over 1,500 likes on that devotional you wrote on Thursday. Good job. Kip, you nailed it. Well done, good and successful servant. No, he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. You were obedient with what I gave you. And what's so cool about that is as I do this more and more, I don't really know if the anxiety levels are coming down. They're coming down as I work in tandem with God, but it's a long-term thing. It doesn't happen overnight. I get to work in tandem with God in this valley called anxiety. And where my devotion is, my preaching follows. Where my devotion is, my life follows. So what about you? I know all of us here are going to face anxiety, and I've got a a challenge for you this week. And it's really a challenge you can have for your lifetime because we're going to go through seasons where all of us, no matter how steady our brains are, we're going to face times of anxiety. And the challenge is this. Whenever you find yourself 
with those anxiety levels going high for whatever it is, ask yourself, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? Fill in the name, fill in the blank with your name. What are you doing here, Kip? What are you doing here, Elijah? Then there's a second part to that. And the second part is, once you ask yourself that question, say that I'm going to go to the land of even if. I'm going to focus on the exit, not the obstacle. Because I know I serve a good God who's going to do something in this. And I've got to trust Him, even when it seems unnatural. We want to help you get focused. One of the things we've done is we've put together 31 days of, of fighting anxiety. It's an insert in your link. And it's got a bunch of different passages there. And it will help you as you get refocused. And folks, I got to tell you, if you're dealing with anxiety, you're getting pa panic attacks, or if you're depressed and you can't even pray because you're so depressed, it's time to seek some help. We've got a Rolodex of incredible counselors. We've got great pastors and people on staff who can, can meet with you and talk with you. We've given you some tools today. Don't fight this alone. Anxiety isn't a sin, but living in it is. Doing nothing about it is. Don't let misplaced emotion turn into misdirected devotion. Skagit, I love you guys. Turning you over to Pastor Brian. Boca Raton, thanks for being us this week from sunny Florida. For those of you joining us online, thanks for being here. Here in Bellingham, let's go ahead and stand for this closing song.